Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Zephaniah. If you're wondering where Zephaniah is in your Bible, it's uh, right after Habakkuk. That's a joke. Uh, We're going to read Zephaniah chapter 3, the whole chapter, and... uh, I should say, as I was preparing this sermon, uh, my initial sermon text was Zephaniah 3, like 14 through 17 or something very short like that. And then I started reading Zephaniah and it got a little bigger and it got a little bigger and it got a little bigger until I thought I should really just preach on the whole book of Zephaniah. I mean, it's only three chapters long, which I, I kind of am going to do. Don't worry. You don't be afraid. I'm kind of going to do. But uh, we're only going to read uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 as our sermon text. Uh, Before we read, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for for your word, uh, for your prophets who spoke and foresaw the coming of your son Jesus, uh, who created a longing in your people Israel for uh, the Messiah to come and to put things right. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, that we would trust in him and rest in him, but you would also give us a longing, a longing not just to see him with the eyes of faith, but to see him uh, with our, uh, the eyes of our body, to see him face to face. Give us a longing for the return of Jesus and a longing uh, to dwell with him in a new creation. Give us that longing as we read. Give us that longing as we hear your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Then all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. 
for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Well, I want to start with two questions uh, this morning, and they may seem like they're unrelated questions, but they're actually closely connected, I think. Uh, The first is this. Why do we celebrate? We've been celebrating for a couple days at least. Maybe if you started your Christmas celebrations earlier, a couple weeks. Why do we celebrate? What kinds of things do we celebrate? In life in general, we we celebrate all kinds of things. We celebrate accomplishments and victories. We celebrate life itself. We celebrate births and sports teams that win and wars that have been won. We celebrate justice being done. Have you ever seen a trial on TV where there's a cheer at the end of the verdict? We celebrate when enemies are defeated or when uh, abusive governments are toppled. What are we celebrating in all of those cases? Well, we're celebrating the end of a, a trial, the end of a difficult period of time out of which something beautiful has come. You know, the trial of birth gives way to new life. The trial of a season of hard-won games gives way to fame and glory of, of your team being the winning team. The trial of war gives way to peace. Uh, the trial of, uh, a judicial trial gives way to justice. Uh, a trial with your enemies may lead to the end of oppression. Right? We celebrate life. We celebrate accomplishments and, and victories. We celebrate the end of a trial out of which something beautiful has come. And, of course, the bigger the trial, the bigger the celebration. Okay, here's question number two. Question number two is this. Why do we in the church talk so much about sin and trouble? And some people think that uh, we just don't want to have any fun, so we're always talking about sin. In fact, one person mischaracterized Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. And uh, oftentimes, that's what we think of Christianity, with all of its talk of sin and trouble. What if I told you, though, that we talk about those things because we want to know joy? And that somehow the path to true and abiding and deep joy is through a proper understanding of sin and the difficulties of life. You know, Augustine, uh, a theologian uh, in the 4th and 5th centuries, said that a proper understanding of evil 
and trouble actually adds to the beauty of the world. Uh, he said at one point, uh, for God would never have created a man, let alone an angel, in the foreknowledge of his future evil state, if he had not known at the same time how he would put such creatures to good use and thus, thus enrich the course of world history by the kind of antithesis which gives beauty to a poem. The opposition of contraries, he says, gives an added beauty to speech, and in the same way, there is beauty in the composition of the world's history arising from the antithesis of contraries, a kind of eloquence in events instead of in words. See, what he's saying is that the, the contrast between the evil in the world and the beauty in the world actually makes the beauty more beautiful. Or uh, uh, Tim Keller actually said something similar, a little bit different, in his book, The Reason for God. He said, a few years ago, I had a horrible nightmare in which I dreamed that everyone in my family had died. When I awoke, my relief was enormous, but there was much more than just relief. My delight in each member of my family was tremendously enriched. I looked at each one and realized how grateful I was for them, how deeply I loved them. Why? My joy had been greatly magnified by the nightmare. My delight upon awaking took up the terror into itself, as it were, so that in the end my love for them was only greater for my having lost them and found them again. Christianity teaches, he goes on to say, that everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Why does Christianity talk about sin so much? Because somehow a proper understanding of sin and of trouble and even of judgment will actually be to our greater joy in the end. This is part of what we're going to see in the book of Zephaniah. If you turn to the back of your bulletin, there's an outline there. We're going to look at three things through Zephaniah, and they roughly correspond to the three chapters in Zephaniah. Uh, first, we're going to see God's purposes for trouble. Then we're going to see God's purposes for good. And finally, we're going to see, this is a little different than in your bulletin, but we're going to see God's plan for joy. God's plan for joy. The first, his purposes for trouble. The book of Zephaniah is a prophecy. And uh, sometimes we think of prophets like fortune tellers, right? We, we think that they're, they're letting us know what is going to happen in the future. And uh, that's, that's not, that sometimes that is true in the prophets. We do have uh, future predictions of what is going to happen. But really, prophets are more like preachers. Uh, who are warning people that the way of sin is going to bring them into trouble. And Zephaniah is no different. As we read through the book of Zephaniah, we find that in his day, God's people were worshiping false gods, particularly the false god Baal. You see that in, in chapter 1, verse 4. And Baal, uh, one commentator said, uh, was the god of, of productivity, his function in, in Canaanite religion in that day was to make the land and the animals and the humans fertile. Baal was really another name for the gross national product, the commentator says. And wherever people see bank balances and prosperity and a sound economy and productivity and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. Wherever the cult of what helps replaces joy in what's true, Baal is worshipped he says. See, the worship of Baal is really just it's the worship of a productive economy, 
It's wanting everything to run properly and be productive and, and uh, make us well off. Of course, the, the people of Israel were also bowing down to the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 5 tells us. They thought that uh, somehow the astrological phenomena somehow controlled their fate. They might have bowed down and sworn to Yahweh, the true God, but they also bowed down to and swore by other gods as well. You see, they had compromised with the world around them. They thought they could praise God on Sunday, but praise the economic system or blind fate every other day of the week. Some had just become complacent. Chapter 1, verse 12 says there were people who were saying, uh, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. See, God had become kind of a non-entity for them. In fact, even the priests in the temple took God light lightly. Uh, the rulers and the kings sought to indulge themselves like the kings of the nations around them. And many had simply turned their back from following the Lord altogether. In the end, they thought any problems they might have, their money could solve for them. Does it sound familiar? Right? Putting your trust in finances or the economy or finding the right job or climbing the corporate ladder. You know, don't we often emphasize in our culture getting ahead in life, making a nice life for yourself, storing away a good-sized nest egg, not simply because we're trying to be good stewards of what God has given, but because we find our safety and our security in these things. And we trust them to take care of us for the future. Well, in Zephaniah's day, God's people had rejected the true God. They were seeking safety and security from the things of the earth. They had rejected the Creator, and they looked to the creation to be their satisfaction and their joy. So God promises to send judgment. A judgment like in the days of Noah, only greater. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God says he's going to bring judgment on the whole earth and yet particularly on his people. And God warns that the day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah 1.15 says that that day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. God is promising serious judgment upon his people. You might think with all this language of total destruction that, that this is simply the end, right? This is it. This is the end of God's people. But God's judgment has a purpose, even here. Notice chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God says to his people, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. See, God threatens judgment because he wants to show mercy. And if his people would only humble themselves, he would hide them on the day of his anger. 
He says, gather together, gather together and seek the Lord. God wants us to seek him. God wants his people to pursue him. God has a desire to be near his people. And so he says, exhorts them, encourages them, calls them to seek him out. Really, in the very beginning, when God created the world, he he planted a garden, he placed man in the garden, that there he might walk with his people. There he might be near them. See, God has always wanted to be near us. Even after uh, Adam and Eve left the garden, when Israel came out of Egypt, God had them build a tabernacle as a portable house for God's name. Again, because he wanted to be near his people. He wanted to dwell in their midst. God later had Solomon build a temple, a permanent house for God's name, so that he might dwell in the midst of his people. Later, Scripture tells us that Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, to restore us to our Heavenly Father, because God wants to be near His people. The final picture in the book of Revelation, you turn to the end of the Bible, is God's people dwelling in the new creation where there is no temple and there is no tabernacle because God Himself will dwell in the midst of His people, right there with us forever. The whole story of the history of creation is about God working out a plan to be near His people, to dwell with His people. God wants us to be near, and so He calls us to seek Him out, to pursue Him. And yet, sin is when we pursue something other than God as the source of our joy and our security and our strength and our self-worth. You know, God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, but that physical separation was just a picture of the relational separation that had already happened when Adam and Eve turned away from God and sinned. And in some sense, every judgment... Every trial, every difficulty since has meant to show us, has meant to show us the emptiness of life and to provoke us to seek our God. God uses trials and troubles to show us our sin, to provoke repentance, to draw us back to himself. He wants us to see our rebellion and the the wrong thinking that we have. He wants us to see our backsliding and our compromise and our complacency. Every difficulty in our lives has been designed to show us our weakness and our sin and to push us towards our Father in humility and independence, seeking mercy and strength. Of course, that doesn't mean that that you're to blame for every difficulty in your life, but rather that you should use those difficulties. You should redeem the difficulty, so to speak, redeem the trial by allowing it to point you to your weakness and to your Father's strength so that you'll draw near to Him, so you'll seek Him out. In the purpose of trouble, all trouble in life, all of which, of course, is ultimately the result of sin in some way, the result of sin's curse, the result of judgment, the, result, the purpose of trouble is to move us to seek our safety and our security, our blessing, our beatitude, and our joy in the Lord, in our God, rather than in this life, whether in money or economics or government or education or family or beauty or the arts or whatever. We're to seek our blessing in Him. God wants you to see that the trouble and sin, that God wants you to see the trouble and the sin that the, the desires of this life bring. So you will run from those things to find rest in Him. That's God's purpose for, for all the trouble in our lives, whatever that is. 
That's the purpose even of the warning of judgments in the scriptures, the warning of the final judgment, the warning of the great trial to come. Those warnings are there so that you would run to him, so that you would seek him out while he may be found. Well, that's God's purpose for trouble. What about his purpose for good? Zephaniah chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 4 through 15, details further judgment. Only this time, it's not the judgment of Israel, but it's the judgment of the nations. And God often, in the scriptures, punishes his people through the nations. Now God is promising to judge the nations to restore Israel. See, the nations, like God's people themselves, were proud and self-secure. The great Nineveh even said things like, I am and there is no one else. See that in chapter 2, verse 15. Nineveh's boasting that they're it. There's no one beside them. But God is going to bring that city to the ground. God's judgment on the proud oppressor, of course, means God's mercy on his oppressed people. God is promising in these verses the salvation for his people through the judgment of his enemies. Then we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and they tell us that God's people didn't accept the correction of the judgment on them. They didn't listen to God's voice when he called them to seek seek him out. Then he moved from judgment on his people to mercy as he cut off the nations. And he says in verse 7, Surely now you will fear me. Now you will accept correction. But all the more, we're told, God says, they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. See, God had judged Israel. Again and again, he brought the nations against them. He took them into exile in Babylon, but they they did not return to him wholeheartedly. So God tried kindness. He, He judged the nations. He restored his people. And like judgment, God's kindness, too, is meant to lead us to repentance. The Apostle Paul once said that God has done good to us by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, those things, all of the many blessings that we enjoy in this life are a witness to Him, a witness to the goodness of our God caring for us and providing for us. He wants to lavish us with good so we seek Him. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That is, to turn away from from our attachment to the created things and turn to our Creator. Allowing created things to have their rightful place, of course, as good gifts from a good God that we enjoy to His glory. Our troubles in life and our joys in life are both meant to do the same thing. They're meant to point us to our God, to cause us to seek His face. God wants to show us our weakness and our sin as well as His mercy and His grace that both of them might drive us to Him. John Newton once said in one of his letters, he said, A considerable part of our trials are mercifully appointed to wean us from this propensity to cling to the stuff of this world instead of to the God of love. And it is gradually weakened, that propensity to cling to the world is gradually weakened by the Lord's showing us at one time the vanity of the creature and at another his own excellence and all-sufficiency. You see, as we see our weakness and our sin and God's judgment and the relative emptiness of created blessings, and as we see God's mercy and saving power and love and holiness and the supreme and satisfying nature of our Creator, we draw near. We find our joy in our God. The problem with Israel, of course, was that they refused. They refused to accept correction. God sent judgment. They refused to be corrected. God did good to them. They refused to turn to Him. We're often like that. 
Our love of the things of the earth is, is so strong that when trouble happens, rather than run to God for comfort and help, we simply mourn our worldly loss. And when good happens, rather than rejoice in God and give thanks, we simply indulge and seek to satiate ourselves in the stuff of this life. Well, what about you? Where is your heart when trouble comes, when difficulties arise? Do you run to God for help and comfort and forgiveness? What about when good things come your way? Do you give thanks and rejoice in God's love and His provision? That's God's purpose. For, for the trouble in your life and for the good in your life, to drive us to seek Him, to drive us to thank Him, to drive us to seek mercy, and to drive us to give praise. Finally, let's look at God's plan for joy. You know, in light of Israel's complacency and compromise, God had brought judgment. They remained hardened. God had brought good things. They refused to draw near. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 8 where God says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation and all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God says, just wait. I'm going to judge one more time. And you might think, oh boy. Judgment on Israel didn't seem to do any good. The judgment on the nations didn't seem to do any good. Why is God going to judge yet again? I mean, is this it, right? Again, is this the end? Has God had enough? He says, all the earth shall be consumed. So, you know, this is the end of everything. But then Zephaniah's sermon takes an odd twist. Because verse 9 says, for at that time. For at that time. On the day of God's consuming fire, on the day of his anger and indignation, something unique is going to happen. Verses 9 and 10 say this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And God says there's coming a judgment, verse 8, it won't have a fire that destroys, but that purifies. The nations, those who do not know God, will begin to call upon the name of Yahweh and serve Him, offering themselves to Him. And it's not only the nations that will be purified by this judgment. Verses 11 and 13 go on. God says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountains, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. See, God is going to send a judgment on that day that will purify his people as well, that will remove their shame and remove their arrogance. In fact, verse 15 says that the Lord will take away the judgment against them. There will come a day when God will send a judgment that will take away judgment. Now, of course, there's only one judgment like that. And that's the judgment that happened at the cross. 
where God poured out his indignation and poured out his anger upon all peoples in the representative of his son. There Jesus took the judgment of God. He suffered the Father's wrath and anger that all the earth would not be consumed. Rather than facing judgment, would be purified. See that even the final verses of Zephaniah tell us that God will gather those who mourn for a feast. He will take away their approach. He will give them a name and renown and make them a praise. This is what we see again in Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus went to face judgment for all peoples. He became an object of mockery and shame. But God removed his shame and gave him the name above every name by rising him from the dead and seating him at the Father's right hand in heaven. Verse 20, very end of Zephaniah says, At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. First and foremost, that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who has been gathered back again to his Father. After coming into the world and dying on the cross and being buried in the grave, God raised him up and brought him back to himself. He is the one who has been made a praise among all peoples because his fortunes have been restored. Right? Though he left heaven and was rejected and mocked and beaten and died and went into the grave, God raised him up and exalted him and restored his fortunes. And he is now praised as the king of heaven and earth. God has fulfilled his promises to Israel in Jesus, right? the representative of Israel, the Messiah, the king. Of course, when we trust in Jesus, when we believe in him, when we put our faith in him, we are taken up into the Messiah. What is true for him becomes true for us. His victory becomes our victory. And these promises then are for us as well. See, it was God's judgment on Jesus and the subsequent pouring out of the Spirit on the nations that purifies us so that we might call on the name of the Lord, that removes our pride, that humbles us and cleanses us of deceit. It is because of the judgment on Jesus, our good shepherd, that he now provides for his people. He gives us rest and makes us secure, as verse 13 tells us. See, it is Christ's exaltation that turns our mourning into feasting, our sadness into celebration, as we realize that, that our glory is not in what we might accomplish, it's, it's not in our financial security, it's not in our strength or possessions or beauty or smarts. When we turn to Christ, when we trust in Him, when our mouths are purified to call on His name, our glory is in His glory. Our King is the King of heaven and earth. Our King has defeated our enemies of sin and Satan and death. Our King has removed God's judgment against us. Our glory... Our boast is in our resurrected King. And all of this is what makes sense of verses 14 through 17, which is what drew me to the book of Zephaniah in the first place. See, these verses 14 through 17 give us a picture of the nearness that God has been working toward, a picture of mutual joy. God's people rejoice in their God. God rejoices in His people. Verses 14 and 15 started out like this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Right? God is saying, sing aloud. Sing aloud, all souls. Right? Shout, O church. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Jesus has removed the wrath and anger of God for you. There's no wrath left. 
There's not a little bit of judgment left over just for you, right? God doesn't have a pocket full of anger reserved for you, right? The Lord has taken away the judgment against his people. Your enemy of sin has been removed in God's sight. Your enemy, the devil, cannot accuse you before the Father because you stand innocent before the Father's judgment seat. Your enemy of death has been defeated. We see that in the resurrection. It's lost its sting. And that though you die, you too will rise from the dead like Christ. On the day of judgment, according to verse 11, you will not be put to shame because your shame has been laid on Jesus. And though we may go through life feeling shame as we do at times, God has removed our shame before him. And at the resurrection, we will stand before God and men without shame. And you think about that. Whatever you are ashamed of now, whatever, wherever you experience shame, wherever you have a sense of your unworthiness, on that day, you will with confidence and joy say, that has been taken by my Savior. The judgment against me is no more. And you will stand before God and men without shame because of the work of Jesus. And so we rejoice, right? The King of Israel is in our midst. Jesus, our King, is with us now by His Spirit. And He will dwell with us for eternity in the new creation. We no longer have reason to fear. We need not fear sin. Jesus has taken it away. We need not fear condemnation. He was condemned for us in the cross. We need not fear our enemies. They've been defeated by our King. He's in control. He rules over heaven and earth. Everything is in His hands. Our victory is open and will be open for all to see on the day of the resurrection when we rise from the dead and it will be shown to all that our victory is secure in Jesus. And yet that rejoicing, that rejoicing in what God has done, I think is not the most amazing part in this passage. These verses give us a picture of a mutual enjoyment, a mutual rejoicing, God and his people rejoicing in each other. So verse 17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You know, when I think about this notion of shame and praise in in Zephaniah's, uh, in the book of Zephaniah, you know, God's people are accused at one point of being shameless in their sin. Actually, twice in the book of Zephaniah, they're accused of being shameless in their sin. Shameless when they should have been ashamed. And yet God promises to remove their shame and make them renowned and praised in all the earth, right? So that everyone will see them and everyone will will sing to them, right? Sing about them, praise them. But the truly amazing part is not that people might delight in us. That's not amazing. No, the truly amazing part is in verse 17. Verse 17, which says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He, the Lord God, will rejoice over you with gladness. You know, we often come to church and uh, we think we come to church to rejoice in God. And that's true. We come to rejoice in Him. Absolutely. Have you ever, even once, thought that you come to church that God might rejoice in you? It seems wrong, doesn't it? You, you, You wouldn't say that to somebody. Yeah, I come so that God might rejoice in me. Why would God rejoice in me? And yet that's what the text says, isn't it? It says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. God's rejoicing over his people. He's glad over his people. He's delighting in his people. He's finding joy in his people. Why would he do that? 
Well, the, the, the short answer or the ultimate answer to that question is that you are made in God's image. And God delights supremely in himself, and so he delights in his image in you. Especially as you, the New Testament tells us, God's people are being conformed into the image of his son. So God delights in his son. He delights in us who are being made like his son. God delights in his son. He delights in his handiwork in us as he conforms us to the image of Jesus. God delights in our joy in him. As we rejoice in him, as we rejoice in who he is, as we rejoice in his character and his goodness and his glory, that's really when we're most like him. And God delights in himself, and God delights in us as we become like him, and so God delights in us as we delight in him. Did I lose you there? Right? Right? God delights in himself. God delights in us as we become like him. And so God delights in us as we delight in him. See, interestingly, verse 17 says, he goes on to say, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will quiet you by his love. It's an interesting picture there. This is where God is bringing us in the Christian life, I think. When you can be quiet before God, it's not as easy as you might think. Where you're no longer anxious, you're no longer worried, you're no longer constantly thinking about what's going on in life, constantly trying to figure out how to solve your problems, constantly thinking about how to protect yourself, constantly thinking about the dumb thing that you just said and how you can you know, make it look right in somebody else's eyes, constantly trying to appear a certain way or look a certain way or gain a certain thing. Right? We're restless. We're not quieted. God wants to bring us to a place where we no longer feel, feel the need to talk just to fill the dead air because we're no longer uncomfortable in our own skin. There will come a time when we will be quieted because our God loves us. We will be quiet before him, quieted, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. That's the, second, the last part of this verse. We will be quiet, and he will be loud, exalting over us. Can you do that, right? Can you be quiet before God and just let him sing loudly over you? Can you accept his care, his provision, his gladness, his joy in you as the object of his saving love? Can you let God be God and just, just be quiet before him, trusting him? Like a baby that's comforted in its mother's arms without a care in the world, you know that rare moment when babies are actually quiet, right? And they're just trusting and resting because they know they're safe. They're not worried. They're not thinking, where's my next bottle of milk gonna come from? Right? They're not thinking, how are we gonna pay the rent on this house that's keeping me warm, right? They're not thinking about those things. They're just quiet and resting. God desires to be near his people. He wants us to seek him. All the trouble we experience in life is meant to drive us away from self and to him. All the good things we enjoy in life are meant to point us to God, the giver of all good gifts. God has a plan. He has a plan for history, a plan for joy, that we might rejoice in him, sing aloud and exalt, and that he might rejoice over us, his redeemed and renewed people. 
Another way of saying all that is God's plan for history is for our joy in him and his joy in us. That's God's plan. That's what he wants. He wants joy. He wants a celebration. Won't you seek the Father? Won't you find joy in his love displayed in the cross? Won't you find joy in his mercy, in his promise of sins forgiven, in the hope of shame removed? Won't you find your joy in your Father? Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us joy in you. Teach us to direct our eyes to you. Teach us to receive the good things of life and not not stop at them, but to, to lift up our eyes and to look to you, the giver of those good gifts. Teach us to endure trouble and difficulty, not focusing on what we might have lost in this life, but focusing on you, focusing on you to care for us, you to provide for us, you to protect us, you to watch over us, knowing that one day we will be fully gathered to you as well, that in the resurrection, all of our shame, all of our trouble, all of our sin will be done away with, and we will dwell with you forever, finding joy in our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.